The question today is, what do you do when you want to serve God and be a part of a kingdom impact? You want to be a part of something meaningful, but there seems to be so many continual complications and limitations and setbacks and roadblocks taking place. What do you do when a year like 2021, riding on the coattails of 2020, just keeps being messy and complicated and difficult? We are winding down a series called Resilient Faith, learning from the examples of men and women of great faith in the Old Testament who walked the walk and followed God with resiliency during difficult times. This week, we're going to look at the story of Gideon. Gideon is a very unique story because he's an extremely unlikely hero. In fact, when the story starts, Gideon doesn't have a resilient faith at all, but then God works with him and turns Gideon into a mighty warrior uh, whose faith ends up overcoming incredible obstacles during a really difficult time in history. So in today's text, we see God sort of build a resilient faith uh, from scratch in an unlikely figure. So we're going to study Gideon and see what we can learn about God building that type of faith in our own lives, in our day and age. But first, a bit of background on the very strange book of the Bible we find ourselves in today, which is the book of Judges. Judges picks up at a point in Israel's history when God's people are really struggling to obey him as a nation. It's at a time where the Israelites did not have a resilient faith really at all. It's a few hundred years after God had led uh, and delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt under Moses' leadership. God set them free and led Israel into the promised land, just as he said he would do. And in the new land, God called Israel to be different, his own special people, a nation that was to be holy and set apart from the wicked practices of the other nations around them. God required Israel to not take part in nor tolerate things like idol worship, sexual immorality, uh, acts of bloodthirsty violence. The occultist practices of that day were really gnarly, by the way. They did uh, baby sacrifices, human baby sacrifices. There was these giant religious orgies where gang rape and all kinds of vile things would take place. It was a very dark and barbaric time in ancient history. And God says to his people, I want you to live differently. I created this world, and I have a vision for people to thrive and flourish if they would listen and follow me as the author of life. And God wanted Israel to instead be a people who stood for love and holiness in the promised land. And at first, they did, but some time had now passed. It's now roughly the year 1256 BC, which is about 200 years since Joshua marched uh, the men around the walls of Jericho. And Israel began again to be enticed and suck back into the idol worship and prostitution of these other nations that had come into the land. So rather than being set apart in God's ways, Israel was getting sucked back into the pagan customs and sinful rituals again. This was a problem because Israel was God's people. Two things you should know about God. God is love and God is holy. Because God in his very essence is holy or without sin, he deals with Israel's sin at this time by disciplining them in the form of allowing some of the other nations to come in and oppress and rule over the Israelites. Now, did God do that because he wanted to inflict punishment on Israel or watch them suffer? Of course not. Hebrews 12 in the New Testament says God disciplines those he loves. 
And throughout the Old Testament, when Israel gets carried away into evil, God disciplines them by making things uncomfortable until they turn back to him. My son, Grayer, is eight years old, and he's a good kid. I know I'm biased, but I think he's a great kid. He's terrific. However, on a bad day, when he is acting or speaking disrespectfully to his mother or to his sister, Ruby, you know what I do in those times? I, as his father, make things uncomfortable for him. I uh, put him in a time out or take away some privileges, and we have these conversations and fill in the blank until he learns a behavior change. Now, do I do this as a father because I'm a sadistic freak? Maybe. No. I don't take any pleasure in disciplining my kids. I've never enjoyed disciplining my kids, but I want to help my son grow up learning to respect women and all people for that matter because I love him so desperately much and I want to train and teach and set my son up for a life of joy where he doesn't hurt other people or himself. In the time of Judges, God disciplines Israel by allowing other nations to rule over them when they go astray. God is holy, but... God is also love. And because God is love, he's so merciful. And each time, the moment that Israel humbled themselves and turned from their sin and cried out to God, God then delivered them from these oppressive nations by raising up human leaders known as prophets, or um, human leaders known as judges, sorry. And when I say judge, uh, don't think of like a person with a, a curly Q wig and a gavel. These were more or less prophets and military leaders that God raised up called the judges who would help lead Israel to victory over these oppressive nations. Some of these judges were men like Samson. Some of these judges were women like Deborah. So there's this pattern of the people sinning and getting dominated by an enemy country and then God delivering them through a judge when they cried out to God for help. That's the backdrop. Deep breath. Today... We're going to read the story of one of those judges by the name of Gideon. So let's dive right in. Chapter 6, verse 1. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. So again, Israel turned to witchcraft and idolatry, and God allows the Midianites, an ancient foe, to conquer Israel. And the Midianites were an arrogant brutal, nomadic people at the time uh, as an enemy. An interesting fact, the Midianites were actually the first people in human history to domesticate the camel, which gave them a tremendous military advantage in battle, which is kind of funny to think about. I mean, in our day and age, the cutting-edge technology is AI and drones and autonomous vehicles and whatever else Elon Musk thinks up next. But in these days, it was camels. I don't uh, know if you've ever been close to a camel or not. I've ridden them before. They are very stinky. They're also huge. People underestimate the size of camels. They're somewhere between a horse and a giraffe. They're like gigantic animals. And the Midianites were the first people in history to train and utilize the camel for maneuvering in combat, which was scary in the day. And so the Midianite army and their camels come in and oppress the Israelites for seven long years, and Israel couldn't quite seem to get over the hump. See what I did there? Verse 2, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds, it says. So the Israelites were so scared, they fled to the mountains and lived in caves to hide, being humiliated by their enemies. Keep in mind, this is before electricity or Netflix, so don't think quarantining at home with a coffee machine and modern comforts. They are living in cold, wet caves as refugees. Verse 3, 
Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. Verse 5, they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. So it's saying the Midianites and Amalekites, these eastern peoples, had formed kind of an alliance against Israel, and they would wait until the moment Israel harvested its crops, and then right then they'd sweep in, riding on their camels, and take away all the grain. This would be the equivalent of someone like robbing you every payday, like you just get your paycheck, and you're like, awesome, and then someone swoops in and steals it from you, okay? It would have been very frustrating what the Midianites and Amalekites were doing to them each harvesting season. Now, pay close attention to verse 6. Don't miss this. Verse 6 says, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. That verse, verse 6, really strikes me because earlier it said this had been going on for seven years now. So after seven long years of being ripped off by the Midianites, of being dominated and intimidated and impressed, after seven years of trying to make their way, hiding out in literal caves, then the Israelites cried out to God. I find that interesting. I mean, think about it. Seven years of man-made strategies and tactics and plans, and then finally someone's like, "Uh, maybe we should talk to God and get his help. Three thoughts for today with the rest of our time if you're taking notes and want to follow along. First thought, resilient faith is living in awareness of our desperate need for God. What is it in our human nature that makes us so stubborn at times? Why do we often try to work things out in our own strength apart from God? I mean, does it really have to take years for Israel to finally cry out to God in humility and admit they need God's help? And, you know, I think there's something in all of us as human beings where our default is to try to figure out our problems or fix things or come up with a plan or try to make a way. And in our day and age, it's no exception where we have the self-made man and the self-proclaimed boss babe woman, where it's all about more than ever, you know, saying, I got this, I'll make my own path, I'll control my own destiny, I'll manifest it into existence for myself. I look at my life, um, especially being a leader, So often, I can pinpoint moments in my life where I'm stubborn to rely on my own experience and leadership acumen from my years of experience as a leader, and I've learned over the years that when I don't humble myself before God and ask for His help and wisdom in how to lead in the situations I'm in, I end up often being humbled. Or in other words, making a fool of myself over time. And sometimes, not just in leadership, but in life, just like Israel, a lot of us make it way harder for ourselves than it needed to be if we would just have humbled ourselves and cried out to God sooner. Some of you uh, listening today have been trying to figure it out on your own, trying to fix your problems, solve this tough time you're in. Maybe you've felt the weight and the heaviness that comes with that. And this morning is time to cry out to the living God. Some of you really love God and are trying to follow him, but maybe you've gotten so down in the weeds of trying to make that relationship work, that marriage work, of trying to parent a teenager. You've, been, you've gotten so far down into the details of trying to get enough money to pay off that debt or to plan for retirement or you fill in the blank that we forget sometimes to stop and ask the creator of the universe for help, to cry out to God and look for his leadership and his deliverance.
Maybe this morning, uh, maybe you're listening and you haven't been following God. Maybe you've been running away from God. You haven't been walking with Him. Uh, you've been putting off, surrendering to Jesus, choosing to ignore what deep down you know to be true, that your sin won't satisfy you, will leave you empty, that God loves you more than anyone else can, and He has a much better journey and life for you if you would turn to Him and admit your need for God. And my question for you this morning, if that's you, is what is it going to take for you to fully surrender your life to God? An emergency, another crisis, seven more years of difficulty and trials before you'll be willing to finally humble yourself, wave the flag, and say, God, I need you in my life. Because it doesn't have to be that way. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to cry out to God in humility and brokenness. And when you do that, God will be quick to forgive and deliver you. And this is so cool. Look what happens um, in the text. Seven years of oppression, but the moment Israel cries out to God for help, God responds and is going to deliver them. What we've read so far is really the prescript or intro because now the narrative view zeroes in on a man named Gideon. Skip down to verse 11. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah, which was in the land of Winfrey, no doubt, that belonged to Joash the Abizrite where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Uh, farmers usually threshed wheat at a higher elevation in order to allow the wind to blow the chaff away as they're threshing. But Gideon, knowing the Midianites were coming in and stealing wheat as soon as it was threshed, he's hiding uh, a covert down in a wine press, threshing wheat in there out of fear that the Midianites would come and rob him again. Verse 12, says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. By the way, whenever you read the title, the angel of the Lord, in the Old Testament, it's a very curious thing. It's what theologians call a Christophany, uh, because for starters, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that figure is synonymous with deity or God himself in the original Hebrew language being used. Scholars refer to these appearances like in Judges 6 of the angel of the Lord as being in fact the pre-incarnate Christ himself. Or in other words, Jesus before he took on flesh and came to earth as the person of Jesus of Nazareth in the first century. Because in theology, the triunal God has existed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit since the beginning. So in verse 12, Jesus, the pre-incarnate Messiah, appears and comes to Gideon and speaks to him. And the first thing he says is, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I love this because here's Gideon hiding from the Midianites, fearful about what could happen to him uh, as if he's discovered threshing wheat, and yet the Lord calls him a mighty warrior. I can just picture Gideon sort of looking to his right or left and saying, who, me? You're talking to me, God? Because God, why, why does Jesus see Gideon as a mighty warrior while he's hiding threshing wheat? Because God sees his own people not in terms of their present issues and problems, but as finished products. Romans chapter 8, we'll put it up uh, on the slides. Romans 8.30, um, in verses like this, Paul talks about how as followers of Jesus, we've been chosen, we've been called, we've been justified, and we've been glorified. And he uses the past tense. He says not you will be glorified by him, it says you are glorified by him as a believer. 
which we know technically is something in theology that, that won't happen one day in the age to come when we stand face to face with Jesus. Yet Paul says we are glorified in the here and now, in the present tense. That's why other passages like Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, talk about the church, God's church being right now without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. And I say, what? I mean, we look around right now at each other and we look around at the American church and we do see stains. We see blemishes. We see uh, believers who are sinning, arguing, paranoia. We see people who are being divisive or judgmental of anyone who thinks or sees something differently from the way that they see it. We look around and we do see stains. We do see blemishes. But God defines us in terms of our future and sees us who we are now in Christ as well as who we will be forever in the age to come when God completes his sanctifying work in us one day. God sees your full potential. And yes, God's aware of our present struggles and weaknesses and he calls us to holiness, but he also sees us as glorified. And I love that because traditionally religion says, hey, you got to do this and this and this and this long list of good behavior and then you'll be holy. Then you'll be made holy. The gospel in following Jesus, the gospel says the moment you surrender in brokenness, your sin and humility, you come to God and say, I need you. The moment you surrender your life to God and repent of your sins and we receive that free gift of salvation, it says God by his grace declares you are now, right now made holy by the blood of Jesus, period. You are holy and then it says now go live like it. You are free, and then God says, now go live free. You are a mighty warrior. Now go live like a mighty warrior. God looks at Gideon as Gideon is hiding and fearful and anxious, and God says, I am with you, you mighty warrior. And God says, uh, God sees Gideon's full potential. And you know, sometimes, sometimes some of us think thoughts like, you know, what can God really do with someone like me? Like, I don't have a platform or following like that person. Uh, some of us think thoughts like, you know, I'm just a, a, a guy working a job trying to make ends meet for my family. What spectacular thing could I be a part of for God's kingdom? Uh, others of us think thoughts like, well, I'm just a, a stay-at-home uh, mom or I'm just a single person. I'm too old. I'm too young. Uh, I don't even have my health anymore. You fill in the blank. Some of us think, man, I'm such a screw-up. I've made so many mistakes. I just can't seem to break free from my past. How could God really use me for something spectacular with all my failures and fears and shortcomings? And today, follower of Jesus, what if God would be saying to you, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior? What if your story is barely getting started? Verse 13 in the text, I love the humor of Gideon's conversation with God here. Uh, Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, Why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And sometimes as God's people today, we join Gideon in these same kinds of questions. Well, if God is really with me, then how come my world is crashing down around me? Why do I see so much pain and hurting right now? How come so many hard things are happening to me? And and where are all the miracles that I read about in the Bible? Why does it feel like God's so far away? 
Gideon doubts that God is with him because of the pain and difficulty he has witnessed and experienced. And God's response is so interesting. Don't miss this. This is like the pivot point in the whole text. Verse 14, this is how God replies to Gideon in his questions. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Jesus, the angel of the Lord, doesn't even answer Gideon's question. Instead, he commissions him. He simply gives him a mission. He gives him a purpose. Second thought, if you're taking notes today, resilient faith is focusing on your purpose over your circumstances. Like Gideon, sometimes we today can get so caught up yearning to know the reason for everything in the here and now. Why is this happening, God? Why did COVID-19 have to happen? Why did the world have to change so much so fast? Uh, How are these COVID spikes and mask mandates back again? Why does the nation seem to be so politically divided? Why does the church seem to be so divided, God? Why are so many of my friends deconstructing their faith? What is it going to take, God, for this country and this city and the church to become more peaceful again? How's it going to work out? God, when is the church going to get back to the normal pre-COVID church? God, where are you in in all these people hurting and angry? We look at the global landscape and and we ask questions like, God, where are you? Uh, Why are all these people suffering in Afghanistan and Haiti? And Myanmar and Syria, we want to ask, why is this happening and how will this ever work out? And like in the story to Gideon, God responds with, I'm not going to answer those questions. Instead, I am sending you to be a part of the healing that I'm bringing to the world. And I have things for you to do today, this week, this fall season. There are suffering people for you to help or to be generous today right in front of you. Am I not sending you? Instead of telling us how it's all going to work out, God says, I'm calling you to live the answers to those questions as you follow me and trust me that I am with you, that I am on the throne, that I'm going to work it all out as you obey me and live what I'm calling you to live today, bringing the hope of the gospel to people who are hurting and suffering around you and need hope. I'm asking you to look at your purpose over your circumstances. And God says to me, and he says to each one of us on this day, am I not sending you? If you open your eyes and stop focusing so much on the events and the news updates and the circumstances, you will quickly find there are people today for you to pray with, share with, serve, and help. And we know from the scriptures, every follower of Jesus has been given a mission a purpose. Jesus' last words to the disciples, those of you that were at camp this week, you studied this passage where Jesus' last words to his disciples were, go be my witnesses and make disciples to the ends of the earth. You've been commissioned. You've been sent to be a part of what Jesus is doing and rescuing a broken world around you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been getting bogged down with questions, uh, and logistics that keep you back from really serving Jesus and living God's mission and being a part of the gospel going out in your community around you. Maybe there's fears that keep you back from talking about your faith uh, to your friends or classmates or coworkers. Or maybe at this point there's simply with some of us a lethargy or a fog 
or an indifference at this point in a long, drawn-out global pandemic. Maybe uh, we're like Gideon. In a way, some of us have been hiding out this crazy global moment down in a wine press somewhere waiting for it to be over. Or like the Israelites at times when things are so messy and there keeps being bad news, you just want to curl up in a cave somewhere and wait it out. But the Spirit of God is calling you and me today back to our sentness to your purpose. When we focus on our circumstances, it's easy to get discouraged and confused. Our mental health takes a hit, and we have a tendency to go into survival mode and slip into our hiding places. But when we focus on our sentness, on our purpose, we find resiliency to yet again choose to be faithful to our mission and purpose God has called us to in the midst of difficult times. So my question is, where is God sending you this fall? Who is he sending you to this fall? Or maybe a better question is, who has God already sent you to? Where has he already placed you in this season of your life? Some of you may have thought, you know, you were a barista at Starbucks to pay the bills and have a job during uh, all of this, and God would be reminding you today, am I not sending you to Starbucks for this season? Your coworkers there need hope, need the light and influence of Jesus in their lives. So when they're complaining and commiserating, you've been sent by God to be a voice of comfort and hope. When your uh, customer is complaining about having to wear a mask, again, you can be a voice of kindness and love and the compassion of God. Maybe you just thought you're a student during a weird time to be a student in history, and God would remind you, am I not sending you to that campus? this fall? Do I not have you in those online classes and discussions for a reason? You are the light of the world, and you can still shine, even though it looks different than it has before COVID. You are the light of the world, and you can shine, and God has a purpose for you. And in your heart, you know this is true. God has a purpose for you this school year. You only got one shot at it. You'll never get this upcoming school year back, so don't waste it. Start it off living for Jesus with your faith, and you'll be a part of amazing ways that God wants to use you to bring hope in the lives of others. Others of us maybe have been sort of in survival mode for too long now, where you just focus on taking care of you and yours, and you seem to get hit by the continual wave of bad news and updates. Let me ask you this. What if instead of being in the mode of continually bracing yourself for the bad, you started bracing yourself for the good that God has for you. Where you start waking up each day and starting the day by saying, God, what good do you have for me to be a part of today in a hurting world? God's calling you to be a part of a story so much bigger than your survival. He has work for you to do. When we focus on our circumstances, we lose sight of the mission, so we need a resiliency in our calling. Verse 15 Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites. Gideon says, God, I have nothing going for me. How can you use me? And God says, well, it's a good thing it's not about you. It's about who I am. And he promises Gideon, I will be with you. Go. Third and last today, if you're taking notes. Resilient faith is focusing on God's ability instead of the limitations and roadblocks. Sometimes we get so hung up, uh, first and foremost, on our 
personal shortcomings uh, and weaknesses, and, you know, we say, well, I can't do that. I'm not good with my words, or uh, I'm not some dynamic leader. I'm not as gifted as her or him. And it's good to be reminded it's not about who you are anyway. It's about who God is, his power, what he can do, and he is able to use anyone who turns to him. Resilient faith is focusing on what God has, not what you lack. Resilient faith is learning to live one day at a time relying upon a resilient God. Doesn't matter if you see yourself as a nobody or you feel like you don't have anything to offer. God can use you and will use you for great things as you trust in him and obey him. But Gideon is only brushing the surface of some major limitations and complications and further obstacles that he's about to face. We're going to pick up the pace in the story so you guys can see what happens to Gideon. In the next verses, Gideon starts following God's calling with baby steps, one step at a time. God tells Gideon first, hey, I want you to go to this local site in the community and remove or tear down the Asherah poles, which were these um, idol structures that the Israelites had set up uh, in worship of the pagan god Baal, being influenced by the other countries. And so Gideon obeys God. He gets a band of 10 men together. They go on a night operation, and they go rip down these structures, and the locals give Gideon a new nickname. Look at verse 32. It says, So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they give, gave him the name Jerub Baal that day, saying, Let Baal contend with him. Now all the Midianites... Amalekites and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the, the enemy armies are forming together in the valley, no doubt because they've heard a rumor that some warrior has got this little insurrection going to tear down these altars. Look at verse 34. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizrites, the local Israelites, to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms. And so the Spirit of, of God comes now upon Gideon, and he rallies together a whole Israeli army to stand up against the Midianites and Amalekites. The problem is the Israelite army was way too small and heavily outnumbered. So Gideon is uh, fearful. His situation has some serious question marks and limitations, and he tests God to really make sure God's with him. Um, we don't have time to read it today, but I encourage you to read the story sometimes in, in Gideon 6. It's a great story, but uh, some of you have heard this before, uh, where Gideon, he does the whole golden fleece stunt, which he essentially is testing God to make sure, he says, God, um, okay, just so I make sure it's you telling me to do this, will you do a miracle? Will you show me this sign in this certain way? Uh, so, and then I'll obey you, then I'll obey you. Now in the Old Testament, typically it was a bad thing to try to test the Lord, but God is patient with Gideon and works with him through his fears and gives him the signs of assurance that Gideon needs. But we'll skip ahead to the battle. This is where things get really crazy. Okay, chapter 7, verse 1. Are you guys holding up, by the way? I know I talk fast. Are you still with me? You guys are so great. Thank you. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel will boast against me, saying, my own strength has saved me. Uh, I want you to understand this. What God just said to Gideon defies human logic on so many levels. 
32,000 Israelite soldiers have gathered here to fight for Gideon. We know that from the verses that follow. So he has an army of 32,000 Israelites, but they were facing a Midianite army of about 135,000 combined forces. So the odds at this point were four to one against undersized Israel. It was already a bleak situation, and yet God says, you know, the odds are just too heavily stacked in your favor, Gideon. What? Like Gideon must have thought, you got to be kidding me, God, we're outnumbered four to one. But God knows the tendency in the human heart toward pride and how quickly we are to want to take credit for our own successes and what only God can do. So God is leading Gideon into a situation where the fledgling, sin-compromised Israelites are going to know and understand that if they do get victory against that giant army, it will be because of God and God alone and not by their own strength or human numbers. Verse 3, God instructs him, Now announce to the army, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 Israelite men left while 10,000 remained. God tells Gideon, Hey, make a cut. Just do a simple announcement. Just say, Hey, if you're fearful, you can go home. 22,000 of them, two-thirds of the army say, Okay, peace out. And they go home immediately. That's my, that's my door to leave. This now makes the odds in battle 14 to 1. Against Israel, they're down to 10,000 soldiers. Verse 4, watch what happens. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out there for you. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping water like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said, verse 7 to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped water, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So the rest go home. And 300 remain. Unbelievable. So God narrows it down from 32,000 fighters to 10,000 to now 300 men who, quote, lapped water like dogs. So it's not just that it's 300 men left, but you have to see the humor in here. Okay, I mean, these 300 guys left had to have been a piece of work. Like, they literally think they're animals, licking the water up with their tongues. This is not only the JV squad. Like, I mean, sure enough, these guys, uh, you know, they didn't go home like the initial 22,000 who were scared. But great for them. They weren't scared. They probably weren't scared because they're a bunch of loonies, okay? Like, they're down. Like, that's cute on a puppy, licking water up like a dog. Think of the lack of social IQ amongst this motley crew. And God says, perfect, take those 300 with you to fight that massive army. Can you imagine Gideon being like, what kind of suicide mission is this? But Gideon obeys God. Look at verse 8. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. Skip to verse 12. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. I love the poetic language. I picture like an old guy telling this story around the fire. The camels were like the grains of sand on Cannon Beach. Teslas as far as the eye can see. So the odds went from 4 to 1 to 14 to 1 to now like 450 to 1 
against the Israelites. Only 300 soldiers were allowed to go with Gideon in a battle. From a human point of view, the odds were totally stacked against them, but they had Yahweh with them. The God of Israel, the God of creation, the God of the universe had a plan. He knew exactly what he was doing. And there's a major lesson in there, by the way. When God calls us to great things, we tend to fixate on the numbers, on the limitations, on the complications, on the roadblocks. We tend to focus on what it will cost, how much we have, whether we have enough people. We have these sayings in our culture like, the more the merrier, the more the better. I say that all the time. But understand, with the God of the universe, less is more. He's setting up Gideon for a miraculous move of his spirit that only God could do. God says, take your 300 water lickers down to face the Midianite and Amalekite forces that are 135,000 soldiers deep. And the crazy thing is, Gideon obeys and does it. Talk about resilient faith. Skip to verse 16. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside the jars. Watch me, Gideon tells them in verse 17, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So let me get this straight. The plan is not go in with swords and arrows and axes and catapults, but with torches in a jar, ready to blow your trumpet? And he says, when I give the command, we'll all start tooting our horns and shouting for the Lord and for Gideon. I love it. For the Lord and for Frodo. I just hear like some early J.R.R. Tolkien inspiration somewhere in here. Watch what happens. Verse 19. Gideon and the hundred men with him, which is one of the three companies, reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, so it's middle of the night, after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets, smashed the jars, and then it says, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hand the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So they're doing exactly uh, what was commanded. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. Verse 22, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords, and the army fled and scatters. Amazing. So Gideon sounds the alarm, and the 300 Israelites who had surrounded the hills around the camp they break the jars and light up their torches and start tooting their trumpets. And as crazy as it sounds, this is actually somewhat of a brilliant strategy that they had as long as the Midianites wouldn't call their bluff. Because one, even though the Midianites were powerful warriors, they were steeped in the occultist uh, superstition and practices of the time. So they were already, uh, they already thought that the nighttime was really creepy. But second, the Midianites were already suspicious of each other because they'd formed all these different eastern tribes and countries together and there's already infighting and uh, defensiveness within the ranks and so wh whatever happened God causes this amazing commotion there they are in middle of the night all tucked in sleeping and suddenly they hear this loud crash they stumble out of their tents in the dark they see these 300 torches all around their camp lighting up the night sky and they turn on each other and start fighting interesting fact Scholars point out it was the normal military practice of the day for a company of 1,000 soldiers to march behind a single lit torch. 
1,000 soldiers behind a single lit torch. So it's possible that when the Midianites came out in their uh, middle of their sleep and they see 300 torches surround them in the hills, it's possible they actually thought they were being encompassed by 300,000, 300 companies of 1,000. Whatever happened, we know that it's a miracle of God. He caused them to turn. They start fighting each other, and Israel gets them on the run as they're panicked, thinking that they're doomed. Let's finish this. You guys have been so patient. Look at verse 24. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim, another part of Israel, were called out and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. So many great names today. Young families, by the way, considering some names to name your son one day. May I suggest Oreb or Zeb? Oreb means raven and Zeb means wolf. Here are my sons, raven and wolf. And my other son, domesticated house cat. We don't know what he does. He just lays there all day. The point is, they win the battle. They capture the enemy princes and execute them. What a bizarre story of resilient faith. Against all odds, God delivers Israel from a behemoth of an enemy, and God gets the glory. The band, you can start to make your way up. And as they come up, my question for you to end, how could all of this possibly relate to us in 2021? Conquest language aside, because of the very ancient and barbaric context in which Israel was overthrowing an oppressor, which by the way, if you are Afghan living in Afghanistan right now being oppressed by a barbaric enemy in your land, you relate to this story in a very literal way. But here in the West, uh, it may not be barbaric armies on our soil. However, you and I are living in a pretty bizarre and desperate time in human history, like most of the world in 2021. As the church in America, we are facing uh, seemingly impossible situations with the ongoing global pandemic and the reactive cultural temperament that comes with it. And guys, I have a spoiler alert for you. I mean, I'm no prophet, but I'm guessing that the whole COVID ordeal is not over, uh, that this fall things will continue to be complicated and or disappointing with the Delta variant or other variants and political division and everything we're seeing now, uh, right now in the world, there are probably more complications, more limitations, more roadblocks ahead for the church. And I don't say that to be a downer, but a realist, and I know that can get discouraging and frustrating, but hear me out. What if these COVID spikes coming back in the US, what if in a way, Some of us are being given or presented the opportunity for a divine do-over where this time, rather than reacting and hunkering down somewhere to kind of wait everything out in survival mode or just kind of uh, seeing what will happen as God's people, you and I this time around instead choose this fall to become resilient in our purpose and calling as the church and we wake up to our God-given inheritance of the good works that he created and prepared for you to walk in as a witness of the gospel in this place and this city for this time during a very messy and difficult time in human history and our great commission to preach the gospel and make disciples? What if more than ever we were to lean into our sentness, our kingdom impact, 
this next season that, that God has for you this fall in the midst of the crazy and difficult times we're in? Am I not sending you? It's no secret, guys, the numbers of people in the American church have been greatly whittled down and thinned out, at least those attending church on Sundays, right? Talking to my many pastor friends, we're seeing this in churches all across Portland. The numbers are whittled down. My, talking to my pastor friends out of state, they're seeing the same thing on, on Sundays with the numbers being thinned out. It seems like the troops have been thinned out. They have been whittled down in a way. Many people have uh, slipped into survival mode or d d just distracted and got away. I'm not talking about our brothers and sisters who are joining us at home watching because they're extra disposed to the risks of the virus. That's what I'm talking about. There's something else happening where the church's numbers have greatly been decreasing during a very volatile time that our culture is going through. But what if the small remnant of God's people that are left, what if we're actually being set up for one of the greatest moves of God's spirit and one of the greatest revivals that we've seen yet? What if this moment in your lifetime is actually your and my Gideon moment? Whether you're 10 or 20 or 40 or 70, I believe the Spirit of God would be saying to us today and afresh, am I not sending you? It's time to turn the tide, guys. The infighting we see in the American church and the landscape of the church right now, the division, the complaining, the survival mode, for some, the numbness and indifference, the why is this happening and the constant reactiveness to the news. And God says to us, am I not sending you? This fall, there are people right in front of you, right around you that are in need of the hope and love of Jesus, that scandalous grace of God and understanding that God has not abandoned them. He's with you. He loves you, you mighty warrior. There are people in need of the message of Jesus and the hope and healing of Jesus. It's time for us to be resilient in our calling and our purpose. It's a new season. It starts now. Am I not sending you? Amen. Let's stand up and worship.